Two young State Department foreign affairs officers get credit for help securing recent releases of Americans held in foreign countries. In fact, they're finalists in this year's Service to America Medals program. Fletcher Schoen developed the negotiation strategy for basketball player Brittany Griner, among others, held in Russia. And he joins me now. Mr. Schoen, good to have you with us. Thanks, Tom. It's great to be here. And Jennifer Harkins was instrumental in the 2022 release of nine Americans held by Venezuela. She also joins me now. Ms. Harkins, good to have you with us. Glad to be here. Since that case seems to be not quite as in the news or famous right now, Ms. Harkins, we'll start with you. Tell us the background of this case and how you got to the point where they were released from Venezuela. I mean, it's not even one case. I'd call it more like five different cases. There was the case of the Sicko Six. They've been detained in Venezuela since 2017. They were released in two separate kind of batches. One was released in March of 2022 with another individual, and the other five were released on October 1st of last year. And then we also had Jorge Fernandez, who was crossing the border and was picked up by Venezuela in 2021. He was released in March of 2022. And Matthew Heath, who was detained in 2020, He spent two years in Venezuelan prison, and he was released on October 1st. And then we also had Osman Khan, who was a recent college graduate who was living in Colombia, who was also picked up as he was crossing the border into Venezuela, and he was released on October 1st of last year. And so it was kind of all separate cases in a lot of ways, except for the Sitco 6. We ended up getting two people out in March of last year, and we had seven released in October, which was the largest release of American prisoners since 1979. What did you do to help facilitate all this? How would you describe your role in it? Sure, yes. My main role here is to kind of formulate the strategy in working with and negotiating with the foreign government in order to secure the release. I also am the main point of contact for the families here in the U.S., continuously giving them updates We also, you know, do a lot of congressional engagement, congressional briefings to make sure they're up to speed. We're kind of the main focal point for these cases, trying to pull together the entire U.S. government team, which includes, you know, the National Security Council, includes Congress, includes others within the State Department, and just largely across the government. I'm kind of in charge of pulling all of that together so that we can all be kind of rowing in the same direction in order to get these guys out. Interesting. So that contact with the family is part of the back end of the whole thing because uh, they're the ultimate stakeholders, I guess. And Fletcher Schoen, you were instrumental in the Brittany Griner case, getting her out of Russia in a prisoner swap. Tell us what you did and a little bit of the background that may not be so well known that happened behind the scenes. Much like Jen, on the, the day-to-day, my, my job is contact with the families and, and sort of quarterbacking the effort back here in D.C. to coordinate what our strategy is going to be to bring someone like Brittany Griner home from Russia. Ultimately, she was freed in a prisoner exchange, but there is an enormous amount of work that goes on behind the scenes because that's a decision that the president of the United States needs to make using his powers of commutation. So, you know, our, our strategy depends on, you know, is it the right time to go forward with that offer? Is it the last option? Have we tried other things? Have we done it in creative ways through different channels and ways the Russians may not have expected? Um, And very much so in Brittany Griner's case, the delicacy of approaching it so as to not increase her value in a way that made it impossible to get her back while also demonstrating our resolve to bring someone like her back from Russia. It was a very interesting uh, case to approach. was put on that two days after coming back from the Middle East with Trevor Reed in another exchange. And so there wasn't really a day off between the two. And currently working on getting Paul Whelan 
and uh, Evan Gershkovich out of Russia. All those cases also play against each other in terms of how we have to balance Russian asks for all of those things. That's another interesting aspect of the strategy. I know Jen had to deal with that as well in Venezuela. Yeah, and I wanted to ask a side question, too, of you both, because both of these countries, both of their leaders, both of their activities invoke a lot of emotional reaction, a lot of heated political rhetoric and so forth. I imagine one of the difficult things is just to keep your own emotions out of it. I mean, every time I hear Sergei Laprov talk, I'd like to throttle him by the neck. I could never work for the State Department. So how do you keep your equanimity when you are dealing with an emotional situation and maybe an angering situation, but you got to keep your mind on the business at hand? What do you draw on to do that, Fletcher? I think for me personally, I draw a lot on my time in the military and the training I received there. And I think it helps me keep a lot of perspective. You know, uh, this, this is diplomacy. It's, it's not war. And so I think I rely on, on, on that perspective to, to remind myself every day that someone in this enterprise on the U.S. side has to be professional. I think everybody involved does remain that way because it's for the families to feel the incredible pain and the prisoners themselves of what these, these adversarial regimes are doing. But we can't find a solution to bring people home before their prison terms end unless we keep that professional distance. So we feel this intensely with the families, but we have to be diplomats to get this done. And Jennifer, what's your perspective on that question? I think you just really have to keep your eye on the ball. You have to be really focused on on what it is you're working on and not allow, you know, kind of the emotional aspect get to you, which is a lot easier said than done, especially because we work with the families so closely and they're so largely emotional about the entire situation. You're trying to keep them calm at the same time. And I think just saying really laser focused on, on what the end goal here is, is to bring home our Americans. And what is it like dealing with your counterparts from those nations? Do they bring the same kind of, I guess, resolve without emotion to it, even though their politicians and higher ups might be trading barbs and rhetoric in the newspapers and so forth? What's it like dealing with the Venezuelan and Russian counterparts, Jen? It's interesting. I mean, you know the background on these people and you know how many bodies they have kind of under their belt. And yet you still have to go into the conversation as if they're kind of your best friend, right? As if you're going to, you know, be pals with them and kind of work towards a solution. It's definitely an interesting experience. There's very little animosity, believe it or not. It's very collaborative. It kind of goes back to your last question. You have to really set all of that emotion aside, all of kind of your preconceived notions of these people so that you can connect with them in a way that you're able to come to a solution. Fletcher? I agree with Jen on that. When we're formulating our strategy to get people out of Russia, the key thing we remember is that we care about this issue so much more than they do. In the end, the people on the other side of the line are killers. That's a fact. And they want that to be known. And so we have to formulate how we do this in a way that gets them back home and is advantageous for the United States, knowing that they have all the time in the world. They don't actually care about the people they're bringing back or our Americans who are in prison over there. So that's an interesting part of the job. I'd say, yeah, it's, it's professional, but you have to keep that in the back of the mind at all times. We're speaking with Fletcher Schoen and Jennifer Harkins. They are foreign affairs officers in the Office of Special Presidential Envoy for Hostage Affairs at the State Department and finalists in this year's Service to America Medals program. And just of all of the things you could have done in life, what attracted you to diplomacy in the State Department? Maybe give us a little brief bio. Jennifer? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I started in consular affairs, working on cases of American citizens. 
it's a little bit less specific and less focused on kind of the return of Americans back to the U.S. It's more in providing Americans overseas with support and, you know, making sure that they're kind of being treated fairly and equally overseas. And so, you know, ultimately, the reason I kind of gravitated towards the Office of Men now is that it is much more focused. It's much more surrounded around advocacy and, and actually trying to achieve a goal as opposed to providing resources and, you know, kind of being available to, especially to family members to talk about a situation with their loved one overseas. And so, you know, I think it just comes down to helping people. That's kind of what diplomacy is all about. No matter where you are in the State Department, you're helping people, whether or not it's people from the U.S. that are traveling overseas, or if you're kind of helping more kind of local people and local economies, local political situations. That's kind of, I think, what attracts everybody to diplomacy. I imagine at friends gatherings and family gatherings, you must get a lot of questions because what you've done is pretty impressive, frankly and outside of most people's experience. Jen? Yeah, it does. Uh, it catches people's eye, for sure. You know, a lot of people who don't know what you do at all, you know, you start to explain it to them, and it's just like the most fascinating conversation they'll have that week. It is kind of a fun topic at uh, cocktail parties and things like that. And Fletcher, you mentioned military service. Tell us about your background and how you got to this place at the State Department. Sure. So I grew up always intensely interested in international affairs. I had family in the State Department and people in the federal government. So I traveled around the world visiting them at the different posts they were at. I always wanted to do something like that. So when I found myself in the military after college, I did about six years in Army Special Operations. Towards the end of that, I wanted to do something more cerebral and more on, you know, at the policy level of things as opposed to being down in the mud. So I got to the State Department because that's where you do those kind of things. I was very attracted to this office's mission because it has a very clear end state. You know, diplomacy is is very amorphous at times. It's about building relationships and keeping your interests out there. But there is such a fine point on the success of what we do here when we bring someone home that it gives a sense of mission complete. I really enjoy that. The flip side is we're failing until we succeed. And so this job can be very difficult. But when we do bring people home, I think there's no one more invested in them coming back other than their families and the prisoners themselves. And so it is an incredible sense of success and and fulfillment. And that's really why two years into this job, I'm still doing it. And you mentioned, too, that the next big challenges for you are the uh, Evan Gershkovitz case and also Paul Whelan. Lord knows what resolution of that is going to look like or when it's going to occur. I wouldn't ask you to predict it. But in your mind, do you visualize them getting off a plane and stepping back onto American soil? Absolutely. And with their families, too, when we speak with them, we talk about what that day is going to look like because you have to hold on to it. And like Jen, I've been involved in these recoveries. I've been out with Ambassador Karstens picking up Trevor Reed and Brittany Griner. And so I know the mechanics of those days. I know what it's like to have someone get on the plane and and be heading home after basically a nightmare of being used as a political bargaining chip. But, you know, in particular, I've been working with Paul Whelan's family for two years. They're five, almost five years into this ordeal. Evan's parents, I know very well, and he and I are not too far apart in age. And so I, I, I really just can't wait to meet him on what I hope is one of the happiest days in his life. And Jennifer, what's your next big challenge? You know, we still have Americans down in Venezuela, some of which are wrongfully detained, and we're still working towards bringing them home. So there always seems to be more. It really does. You know, the interesting thing about Venezuela compared to Russia is that myself and Ambassador Carsons, we do travel down there every once in a while. 
mainly to speak to the other side um, and try to work towards releases, but also to get down there to see the Americans who are detained. And so it's kind of a little different than what Fletcher's thinking of where he's, you know, eager to to kind of meet Evan and, and Paul. I've already met all the guys we're working towards securing their release. I've, I've met them multiple times. And so kind of having that personal contact with them and being invested in their cases, you know, kind of adds something extra to the cake here when, when we finally get them home. Jennifer Harkins and Fletcher Schoen are foreign affairs officers in the Office of Special Presidential Envoy for Hostage Affairs at the State Department and finalists in this year's Service to America Medals program. Jennifer, thanks for being with us. Thanks so much for having us. And Fletcher, thanks so much. Thank you. And we'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees, joined Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to share how his upbringing in rural Alabama eventually propelled him to the forefront of thousands of union members raising a collective voice. After years of leadership with both the largest federal employee union and as a pastor, Everett Kelly reflects on his deep-rooted values of integrity and hard work. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Mr. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees. Everett, welcome, and thank you for being here. Shane, thank you. It's a pleasure. mine. You first joined AFGE in 1981 during what eventually became your 30 years of service at Anniston Army Depot. We're now more than 40 years past 1981, and you've been the union's national president since 2020. How's your decades-long involvement with AFGE impacted the way you view your role now as the union's leader? The time that I spent as local president, I simultaneously spent that same time as a pastor in Alabama. I like to say that this was my training ground because as I was entering into the role of unionism, I was also entering into ministry. And so I see my role even as the union leader as ministry. It's never an understatement because this is what I believe. I believe that if you love people and show people that you love them, people will follow you. My business is in the business of growing people, uh, and that's what I do. And And I think that my training as a pastor and as a union uh, leader has given me the ability to really, you know, uh, grow people because I feel like that, you know, it's my responsibility both as a union leader and as a pastor to ensure that people have a livable wage. It's also uh, my responsibility to ensure that people are treated fair with dignity and respect on the job. And I think that goes in both uh, arenas. So, so I've seen this, you know, as ministry, as I've grown through the four decades of leading people. Putting those two together is amazing. AFGE handles a massive array of issues and topics of importance to feds across many departments and agencies. What is it like being at the forefront of all those moving parts, and how do you manage it all? Well, first of all, let me give kudos to my staff, okay? Uh, Because it's just no way that I could manage all of this work and all the moving parts by myself. 
but I have an excellent staff that always makes sure that I'm prepared and that I'm ready. But it's exciting. It's exciting to be out in the forefront, you know, uh, bringing people to the realization that they have something to fight for. But again, I cannot, and please understand when I say I cannot, it's, it's, it's what I truly believe. I cannot do it without a good, strong staff. Uh, and I tell anybody that, but I enjoy fighting for the cause. I enjoy standing in front of a group of ALG members, calling them to action, and then standing back and watching that action come to fruition. Because I know that I'm not the one that's doing it, okay? They're the one that's doing it. I'm merely casting a vision, right? And I enjoy casting a vision and then watching that vision come to fruition. And it's the staff and the members that get that done. As CEO at, at WEPA, I completely and totally understand that. We rely on them. It's not Absolutely. just nice to have. We rely on Absolutely. them. Absolutely. As AFGE president, you often speak at union rallies and other events widely attended by federal employees. What's it like to experience that direct connection to employees? And how does that influence your leadership style? You know, that gets me excited, okay? To be standing in front of a group of AFGE leaders get me excited. To hear the words, who are we? And the chants that come back that says AFGE gets me excited. It gets my motor uh, running, if you will. And it's exciting to look at them and see the motivation in their faces when they're fighting for a cause. And, and, and all of us come together and fight uh, in solidarity, fight as one, raise one voice. You can't explain the feeling. You just know that it's right. You know, I just know that it's right when I'm standing there and I feel this. And I never fail to say thank you again because I'm the one that merely cast a vision. They are the ones that get the work done. And so when I see them out there ready to go and that call to action goes out, then I see them really begin to march on that uh, initiative. It's an energy that I cannot explain. I can explain it. I'm feeling it right now. <laughs> um, d describe how your personal background and upbringing folds into how you function as a leader. You know, understanding that I was born in the Deep South. I was born in a little small town in Goodwater, Alabama, population 1,292 today. Born to parents that, and I hope I don't offend anybody, and I've got to quit saying this, but, but I was born to a set of parents that, believed and trusted in God. And that began to establish who I was. I began to trust God myself in everything that I do. I, I trust God even in this situation as a union leader because my parents taught me to believe in uh, the Bible. And with that came do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. In other words, treat people right. Treat people with respect, right? do what's right. It taught me, you know, about integrity, right? It taught me about being honest, you know, and that's what's needed in the role of a leader of this union. It, it, it's, it's needed. Uh, and, you know, I try to portray that. I try to portray a person of honesty and a person of integrity. And so being in the deep South, you know, you, you, you just learn those things. And that's what has helped me uh, throughout my path as a union leader. And it's always nice, that whole approach, because you don't have multiple approaches with different people or different sets of 
different tasks, different energy. It's it's always straightforward, yes. honest. Here's the truth. Yes. And it, it's it's easy. Yes. Right? Yes. It's a lot easier than having multiple personas. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. What's one piece of advice if you could go back and tell yourself when you were starting your career? You know, I don't know you asked for one, but I'm I'm gonna have to elaborate on two. Yeah. If that's yeah. okay. Number one, I would explain the urgency of integrity a lot sooner than what I did, right? Because to me, integrity is not necessarily what you see others do or what others see you do, but integrity to me is what you do even when no one is looking. And so I I would really begin to stress that importance more so at an earlier state in my leadership role rather than the latter part. Okay, I begin to stress that more now, but I wish I had began to do that more at the earlier states in my uh, role. Secondly, I would tell myself to always, and I'm going back to my roots, always work hard and don't ever accept no as an answer, right? Because I just believe that if you want it bad enough, if you want to achieve it, you can it's all about the amount of work you put into it, right? And the and the amount of faith you have that it can be accomplished. So when I look at AFGE and its membership and where we were four or five years ago and where we are today, that's a reminder that you can do whatever you want to do if you put your mind to it and work hard enough. And one question that's always kind of interesting at, at the end of our time together is, is there one person, you mentioned your parents before, mm-hmm. um, is there one person or maybe more than one who really inspired you when you were younger that you might even think back on today? It was my grandmother, you know, with the understanding that when and when I was born, right, as I said, I was born in the Deep South. My father worked extremely hard. We didn't have a whole lot. You know, my, I had 12 siblings. And so when I was born, I was very sick. Matter of fact, the doctor said I wouldn't live to be 16 years old. The doctor said I wouldn't ever hold a job. But my grandmother would always teach me how to pray. And she taught me about faith. And it is prayer and faith that has allowed me to be standing here today. Suppose I've been dead 50 years ago, but I'm 66 years old now. And it's all because of my faith and my belief in my prayer life. And I believe that beyond a shadow of a doubt. Amazing story. Thank you for sharing all of it with us, Everett. And really appreciate you being on the show today. Pleasure is mine. And this is Shane Canfield. We'll see you next time on Lessons in Leadership. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.